This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, I'm Mike Province, CEO of 3x3. We're a shopper engagement company that connects liquor brands and retailers with their most valuable customers. And the thing I love about retail is the way that it gives shoppers the way to discover new products from around the world, find hidden gems of brands or, or tools or toys that they want to play with. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Retail is Your Business, and it is, isn't it? It is your business, and I'm so happy that you're here. I'm your host, Mark Rako. Uh, without the great and powerful Rebecca Fitz today, unfortunately, Rebecca has other business priorities she must attend to, but that's okay. We're still going to have a great time with our guest, Mike Province, CEO of 3 by 3 Mike, I am so happy you're here, and I get to have this conversation with you. How are you? Doing well. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation, too. Great. Welcome to the show. Um, all right. Let's let's. Uh, so you're coming to us down from North Carolina, yes? That's right, Chapel Hill Research Triangle. All right. Uh, and you're a bo- are you a born and bred uh, North Carolina boy? I'm from Wisconsin originally. Oh. I um, <laughs> migrated my way here by way of Boston, New York, Pittsburgh, Washington D.C. Kind of worked wow. my way down the seaboard. Wow. Well, and you and while you were in D.C., you did work with the as a civilian with the. Uh, Department of the Navy, and I believe the U.S. Strategic Command as well, yes? I did, yes, doing some really interesting work helping them figure out the technologies that needed to be invented so they could help protect the country from future threats. Okay, so that is a beautiful springboard to my very first question, and we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of what 3x3 is all about in just one moment. I want to know... How a guy goes from doing what you just described with our military at a high level to uh, how that has prepared you to work with liquor retailers to help them use online strategies to achieve their offline goals. Draw me the straight line between those two things, my friend. Can't promise it's a straight line, but it's a line. (laughs) There's a connection. I've spent the bulk of my career from the very beginning, investing in internet-based technologies, helping the, the a company build the first personalization server for the internet. So pre-cookies, how could you track people online? And we built and launched MapQuest on top of that. We built and launched some of the first e-commerce uh, that the world had seen, a site called Micro uh, Microcommerce way back in the mid-90s. And But that basically my career has been spent in and around digital data, internet, and ultimately processes and tools for creating innovative technologies. So the path to the military came through a track record of understanding how to bring innovative technology into highly regulated environments um, and helping them think about that perspective. From there, it was into healthcare, another highly regulated environment, and then into liquor, another heavily regulated environment. So. The, the, the connecting thread throughout the whole thing is that I help companies that are in these kind of 
complex environments, navigate mm. innovation, creating new businesses, creating novel platforms and tools for whatever they're trying to do. Gotcha. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. Thank you for that. Uh, what is three by three? Well, first of all, I think the very natural question, which I, I know everybody asks, but I think it is a, an important context. Uh, the name three by three. Uh, excellent to me. question that we get a lot. I know. So now, it, it goes, goes back to that regulated industry issue. And Across all of retail, liquor is the only one that has some very strict rules. Uh, well, can cannabis does too, and that's kind of drifted into retail now, so we'll leave that aside. But in liquor, there are three tiers, the, the brands, the wholesalers, and the retailers. But unlike other parts of retail, there are strict rules about what brands can and can't do with retailers. They have to work through their wholesalers. They have to follow what's called the three tiers. So the first of the threes in our name is the three-tier system. So we have dedicated our mission to the independent, small mom-and-pop retail channel for alcohol sales. The second three refers to a, a reference that came uh, ultimately from the CEO of Pernod Ricard a long time ago, uh, but it referenced the nature of discovery in the liquor store space, and that's, or even it applies in restaurants and bars. It's we make a decision of what we're going to purchase in terms of alcohol and other products when we're three feet from the shelf, when we're arm's length away from the shelf. And understanding the consumer psychology that leads up to that event when I take something off the shelf and decide to buy it is what we focus our business on. So three by three is liquor and consumer psychology. Gotcha. Uh, explain to us about the consumer psychology part. What has uh, armed you and your team to be looking at that part of the equation? Because I can uh, appreciate, a, you know, the, the analytical business side. I can appreciate that there would be a technology uh, infrastructure here and a technology foundation. Um, how, how is your team prepared to really look at the psychological side of things and make that connection into, you know, uh, business practices, algorithms, and so forth. Uh, great, great question. The when you look at most of retail, most of CPG, in fact, grocery, all of that, you know, people shop in certain predictable ways. They know what they're going out to look for. They've done the research. One of the things that makes the liquor space, and especially the the independent package store, liquor store channel, unusual, is it's one of the last places where people still go to discover something. There's a magic there, right? They walk in the store. Most of us don't walk in our lo local liquor store with a shopping list. These are all the things I'm going to buy today. Right? We might walk in saying, I need to replace that bourbon that I drank the other week, or I need, I've got a party coming up, so I need some wine. We'll go in with some brands in mind, but most often we walk out with products we never thought we'd buy, brands we never thought we would try. And it's all resulting from the nature of discovery and that experience that the retailer does in hand selling with the shopper and the, the wealth of knowledge that today's shopper can bring into the store with them when they're coming into shop. So we focus on understanding the psychology, not from a psychologist's point of view, but from a behavioral economics point of view of looking at the shopping data that's happening in the store, the baskets. And one of the more powerful things we've been able to do with our technology is connect the basket of products 
to a basket of tastes and being able to understand that when you walk out the door with a bottle of Tito's, a six pack of IPA and a, a barefoot uh, Chardonnay, that that actually represents different taste patterns that you or your household have for the products that they're that you're buying. So we use that to build models of shopper behavior tied to how they think about the taste they're shopping for. Um, it's not a perfect science by any stretch. In fact, it's some art, some science, but it's reflective of the nature of trying to enable innovation and discovery in a industry that for too long has really been about moving bottles through the system. And if you throw enough bottles in, somebody, some people will buy them and some won't. And it's a very inefficient process the way that it has run. Sure. Of course. Uh, how, how applicable is this to other industries? Are you able to tweak this and, and, and white label it for industries outside of uh, uh, liquor or um, is it so specific to that industry that it's, you know, really only applicable there? Well, it's, it's most applicable in the consumer packaged goods, right? It's most applicable okay. where food, food and beverage, because we're dealing with taste. And while there's taste in other products, we're dealing with like the actual consumption tastes of shoppers. And well, if that, that red wine has a cherry flavor to it or a you know taste mm -hmm. notes to it and it has some charcoal taste notes. Yeah. Well, there are snacks that trend that way too. There's other foods, right? There's pairing. So it can extend, but we started there in the liquor That's space. It. Um, how, is this mostly uh brick and mortar or does this work with, uh, e-commerce businesses as well? Since the shopping process in e-commerce is very different uh, you don't handle the goods. You don't go to one aisle and then kind of come back or you don't see someone else with it in their cart and go, Ooh, or, you know, you, you know what I mean? Uh, oh, it's yeah, a different yeah, process. Yeah. So how, how applicable is this there and how do you have to change your process? Yeah. E-commerce e killed the discovery uh, process in, in alcohol sales. It, and, and we see it. I mean, we, we've talked, I've talked with retailers whose e-commerce sites, they said 70% of their shoppers, when they're buying wine, buy wine that starts with a number or the letter A, because that's as far as they get down the list before they get That it. is fascinating. Yeah. No, it just so happens there's a lot of wines that fall into that category. Well, but... I can understand why. <laughs> but, you know, imagine, and, and obviously some of that is driven by the technology. We can, of course, build e-commerce systems that can shuffle the deck, so to speak. Um, what we're trying to do, and your question about brick and mortar versus e-commerce, for us, the shop, the way the shopper decides to buy, we focus on that solve, helping solve that problem regardless of whether it's online or in the brick and mortar. But you know, you have to address it differently because often people who are buying online, their baskets are two or three times the size of when they go in the store, but they're buying less frequently, right? And so the buying patterns shift, the behaviors shift. So you're almost modeling two different types of shopping, even though you can do both, because at the end of the day, you're interested in what's in the basket and turning that into a model of the shopper. Interesting. Uh, d d d is this applicable to stores that have liquor departments versus they are a liquor or alcohol store? Um, it, it can. We've worked with grocery in the past. It can work with C-stores, gas stations. 
Um, it works best, obviously, for obvious reasons with liquor stores, because the number of non-liquor products on there tend to be smaller, you know, smaller number of products. So we can focus on understanding that alcohol-based basket. But the reality is any receipt, any transaction, as long as we can identify the alcohol in the mix, lets us model it. It actually could be more useful in a grocer with a big liquor aisle. Because in many of those cases, right. liquor is 25% of their sales. So if we could understand the the taste profile of that shopper and then match it to snacks mm. they're buying or meats and cheeses they're buying, suddenly it becomes a richer data set. The, uh, what about, what about service based retail, like restaurants or, uh, or, or other ways people may access, uh, liquor, um, you know, tra travel and hospitality, uh, is this applicable there as well, or only in, you know, so straight out retail? That, that, that notion of the three feet from wherever you're making your decision applies in whatever context, okay. <laughs> the, the, the data the data collection mechanisms are very different, obviously, right? If I'm going to a restaurant or if I'm at a bar, I'm not buying baskets of bottles of alcohol. I'm buying drinks one, you know, one at a time, two at a time. But there is a lot of they can the analytics can uncover about popularity of, of two products traveling together to a table to or to a bar, right? That beer and wine, beer and spirits, they are interrelated. And so you can track that same behavior at a restaurant or bar as you could in a liquor store. In some ways, probably more accurately because you have the ability to tease out mixers and things like that. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so, um, you know, you, in the past, uh, in the COVID world, the consumer's tendency to buy a larger basket less often must have hurt independent retailers because the consumer is sticking with bigger brands. Um, have you made any headway yeah. into understanding what can be done to counter that? Yeah. So what, what we saw in that window of time um, from the independent retailer perspective, you had two things happening that went in opposite directions. One with restaurant and bar shutdowns, a lot of consumption shifted into the liquor stores. Now, there was a period from March to say July 4th or so that was best described as panic buying, right? You saw this kind of binge buying and then burn down, binge buy and then burn down. And it, we could literally watch week to week how these shopping behaviors would occur, um, which was good for the top line for the retailers. But as you mentioned, the people's ability to shop went to brands they remembered. And all of a sudden, all these small brands were getting set aside because they couldn't be discovered. And people were going back to old names that they knew because of their parents or that they knew because of college or what have you. Um, and so you suddenly saw a shift in the demand in terms of the kinds of products, which also affected the bottom line negatively, because typically those bigger brand products came with not quite such good economics for the retailer. Have you taken a look at StoryDot yet? Every brand and every product has a story to tell, and you can't successfully sell that brand or product without telling the story. StoryDot delivers your story wherever you want it to be heard. You can meet your customers at each point in their journey, connecting the dots between 
your business and the consumer to enhance engagement, experience, and conversion. I encourage you to take a look at StoryDot at StoryDot.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-D-O-T.com. Three by three has a predictive marketing model, I believe, and you target customers on, you know, what they're more likely to purchase. How can you determine the attributes of them, uh, you know, the primary consumer uh, of specific products? How are you able to accomplish that? Yeah, predictive may be a little bit uh, generous, but let's think of it as a model that targets the highest propensity shoppers for a given product or set of qualities about that product, whether it's beer, wine, or spirits. We use transaction data, point of sale data that we get from our retailer partners. And that data helps us understand which shoppers fall in which households through the models that exist through third parties, financial companies, credit card companies, companies like that. We're able to use that third-party data mapped to our retailer data to help us understand which pockets and which neighborhoods around a store have the highest propensity for a particular brand or a particular product that we're trying to help the brand or the retailer promote. So imagine, you know, if if um, uh, if if Tito's Vodka, not that they need any help, wanted help locally targeting vodka drinkers who are uh, have a environmental uh, mindset and like um, gluten-free products and organic products and, and, and all of, and, and all of that. We would build models around the neighborhoods in the liquor stores that carry the product and drop digital content to, to encourage those shoppers to shop those stores. Uh, it's in, what's important to understand about our model is that it's very local because the shoppers who shop the local liquor store, tend to live or work nearby. So we don't have to cast national nets. We don't have to have large um, campaign budgets in order to create enough conversion from the impressions. Uh, Our focus is on finding those pockets of value across the country and across our retailer network. Got it. So when a a brand, uh, you know, implements well, initially develops and then ultimately implements a digital marketing program like the kind of work that you do. Uh, What are some of the challenges in in developing that and ultimately deploying it? There are always several when it comes to digital marketing. I think first and foremost is is being able to work with the clients and, and help them or make sure that they understand this notion that marketing is not a transaction oriented outcome right? It takes many steps from awareness building to consideration set to shopping for a product to actually purchase. Which, and, which is funny because that's actually probably one of the biggest mistakes brands make is not understanding that. They, they say, well, if I, it's almost if I build it, they will come. If I, if I promote it, they will come. If I put this, how come my quarter page ad I put one time in the newspaper didn't make my sales blow up? You know, it's, right. that's, not, that's not marketing. Right. And it's in alcohol, especially where the the brands are kind of broken into two. There's the brand side of the business, and there's the trade side of the business. The people who have the budgets for local marketing are the trade side, and they think 
rightfully so, in the mindset of moving bottles through the system to get them on shelves, to get them in people's trunks. So they equate marketing to sales dollars. Uh, but the reality is with digital especially, with shoppers having so many choices, before you ever get them to pick up a bottle and try it, you've got to get them to be aware, to have that motivation to want to check it out. They've got to go check it out on all the different social media sites where their friends are and look at recommendations. The behaviors of digital shoppers have changed so dramatically in the last, even the last five years, let alone 10 or 15. Um, but so starting with an understanding that is a journey, not a event. But then the next step is digital media isn't a solution in and of itself. It's part of an overall integrated program. And this is especially true with smaller brands, craft brands, or even products that big companies are trying to launch that are brand new, right? They've got a lot of awareness building when you're launching something new before you ever get to people willing to try it. And one of the things that was lost in the last year and a half that was really critical to that with the liquor stores was the ability to do tastings, right? That used to be how small brands would get noticed, just like it is in grocery or anywhere that can do samples, right? So that that ingredient need, it needed to come back digitally, and that's something that, that a lot of brands struggled with in the last year. The things you just talked about, Mike, uh, are clearly applicable across many industries, not just the liquor industry. So what... Do you think that industries, any any other retail industries can uh, could learn from the work that you do with the liquor industry, the kinds of insights that you're able to gain and the types of services uh, that you're able to deploy? Uh, what learnings and insights could other industries pull from that? You know, the, the thing about shoppers, consumer shift to digital buying, when you get beyond the, the massive sites, right, the Walmart.coms, the Amazons, the place where it's all price-driven, there are large swaths of shoppers who don't shop price first, who want to look for the right product. And, and the, the biggest thing that comes from traditional ways of doing that, whether it's trying clothes on or taking cars for a test drive or sampling a product in a grocery store or a liquor store, is it, it's about that experience. It's about imagining yourself in the future in that situation. Right? And so digital that does experience well works well for driving shopper engagement in the same way that all those traditional means do. But it has to be about that experience, the, the content, the voice, everything has to help the shopper imagine the future. So what would you say, other than providing the data that you do to, the, to, your, to your clients, what would you say is ultimately the advice or the action plan that is usually the first one out of your mouth to a new client? just most commonly the most obvious thing that they can do that um, that pushes them in the, in the right direction. And then you get into the fine tuning after that. You know, I think the, 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 the number one first thing that we do with the retailers is reset their expectations about who their shopper is. 
they make a lot of assumptions and a lot of extrapolations, frankly, from, well, people in the big box stores buy my product this way. But people who shop in big box stores, even if it's the same person shopping in a liquor store, shops entirely differently. And so we reset expectations around, let's look at who your real high propensity buyers are, and let's start from there. Yeah. That's got to be particularly valuable information right now, given the pandemic, because I know I have so many people I've talked to, and I know I know you have this same experience too, both uh, anecdotally and professionally. Many people have been truly transformed in the way that they shop, not just going more digital, but even what their priorities are. Uh, in the things that they shop for, because in some cases they're thinking about life differently or, you know, or their employment situation has changed or they've relocated or, you know, or they don't, they don't trust that it's over quote unquote, or they, you know, whatever it is, it's changed who they were the day before the pandemic to, to now. So, um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe my question is, is how have you had to, or how, how, are retailers working hand in hand with you to reset even those expectations uh, and understanding of their own customer, which may have changed over the last year? Yeah, I'm sure this behavior translated across retail sectors. But one of the things that we saw as a result of the, you know, the it's really the, the, the cascade of events following the pandemic, right? The pandemic itself didn't change behaviors. But shutting down restaurants and bars, closing down, you know, many people losing their jobs, all of those things had unpredictable nonlinear outcomes for, for the retail space. Um, but what we saw and what we're seeing still is, interestingly, a shift up market, right? Even in lower income segments of shoppers, people are prioritizing quality now more so than just purely price. And they're willing to try a slightly more expensive product and move up market, try new things, typically through social recommendations, right? They're getting their information from their friends because they're having Zoom nights together or, or, or what have you. Um, and so that, that's, you know, that move up market is an unexpected outcome where you would think that people would be conserving, saving money. But when you think about it, if I'm not going to the restaurants and bars in that last year or so, spending three times the cost on a bottle of wine, I can get better wine for the dinner I'm having at home. I can have my family and I can spend a little bit more money on cocktails or I can bring a couple friends from my pod over and we can try some new things. So you see a lot of, of market behavior unexpectedly occurring in this time that potentially is sustainable, right? And, and it'll be good for the craft and the small brands to get back into the market because they're the ones that are in that kind of sweet spot of price. Perfect. Got it. All right. My, my last question before we get into personal, uh, personal uh, taking a look at you as a, a human being, Mike, <laughs> is uh, I want to read something that I was provided here uh, to be transparent through your publicist. And I want to ask you a question about that, that 3x3 three three is a, in a joint venture between several multi-generational alcohol industry veterans 
And Loeb Enterprises is a digital marketing company that uses a multi-pronged approach to follow customer preferences by incorporating point-of-sale receipts generated at its exclusive network of 1,500-plus stores in 37 states, tracking consumer interests on social media, analyzing inventory mix, pricing, basket adjacencies, and customer loyalty, and therefore able to better understand preferences and processes behind purchases so that retailers and brands can identify and act on emerging trends using digital tools. So that is that is a uh, a summary, if you will. The longest sentence in history. The longest sentence in history, right? Okay. So my <laughs> question is, how is this resource and the ability to access this information and this intel, how, how does that go beyond simply, geez, what do I sell? When do I sell it? And what does my customer look like? into larger enterprise decision-making, you know, the direction of uh, where you will allocate budgets within a company, uh, how you, you know, stock pricing or predictions, uh, um, leadership changing. How, how can this go? T- tell me your, your insights and, and what you've even seen over time that go beyond the sales floor and go into global strategy uh, making for uh, especially larger uh, enterprise level uh, liquor companies or alcohol companies, I should say. Absolutely. So, you know, in this industry, remember that it, it kind of only dates back into the mid 30s, right? Everything, get, there was a prohibition period, and then when everything came back, other than medicinal alcohol, everybody had to rethink what retail alcohol sales looked like. And so for you know, 70, 80 plus years, alcohol sales followed a, a formula that everybody knew. You had feet on the street, you got bottles on shelves, and some bottles sold and others gathered dust. And the reality is that for the entire industry, whether you're a brand, a wholesaler, or a retailer, bottles gathering dust are is a bad thing. It is a bad thing. Yeah. So... Um, one of the biggest things I think that our path can help do in time is bring more efficiency to that marketplace, right? If you know what's likely to sell and what's not, if the if that information is available to brands and to retailers, then hopefully the people making decisions in brands start producing less of the products that aren't going to move and more that will. And that you can start to optimize not just in a state, right? It doesn't help to sell as many bottles as you can in the entire state of North Carolina or Wisconsin or Massachusetts. It helps to get the maximum bottles that are going to sell in any particular store allocated properly because certain stores have certain types of customers. So we start to see that thinking permeate in the way people look at the data we have can help them access in the way, and not just the data, really the insights and the ability to act on those insights and deliver results at a local level. But we also see it in things that are, and this is not something that we're driving, but the industry itself at the brand level is changing where more new hires coming into senior leadership roles in big manufacturers are coming from other CPG like Pepsi or um, P&G or places like that. So they're bringing models of other retail 
into alcohol and it's changing the way that they think about innovation. So we work with a brand today that went from a notion of I'm, invent I'm coming up with a new product, I'm going to produce a lot of it and put it on shelves and see if it sells, to I'm going to produce a little of it, I'm going to test it in a handful of retailers, I'm going to see what works, then I'll go back and I'll test again, I'll learn, I'll test again. So that whole test and learn mindset that's fairly new to our industry is even permeating into the big manufacturing decision making. And that, that coincides very well with how we help look locally at local at these small stores. Gotcha. Very good. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, uh, it, this seems so, so basic in a way, but it, uh, I think it's, uh, it's something we lose sight of, especially how we get the right data to support those decisions. So appreciate that. All right. Uh, we'll take a quick break when, uh, we return. It's going to be, uh, very little about three by three and all about Mike by Mike right after this. <laughs> Culture starts at the top, and great customer experience, the only competitive strategy in today's world, is fueled by great leadership. We hear and read this every day, but many brands don't drive customer-first strategy. For those at the top who want to make that leap but don't know how, we'll learn from leaders who share what you must do to become customer-centric. I am Liliana Petrova, and this is The One Thing. The One Thing, Customer Experience from the Top, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever the best podcasts are found. All right, Mike, this is the part of the show where we get personal, ask you uh, about you as a human being. Uh, and, right. and by the way, I, I, for since this is an audio podcast, I want to point out that as we got into this segment, Mike kind of nestled down and got a little closer to the microphone. He's ready. He's in his athletic position, ready to receive. Uh, <laughs> so, Mike, uh, I'll start here. And uh, by the way, these questions are all off the top of our heads. You know, we, we don't think about these in advance, just to let you know. If right now I could transport you anywhere instantaneously in the world and you didn't have to do any work, and you could literally do any activity you wanted to do, or lack of activity perhaps, uh, at any location in the world, all expenses paid, uh, and you could be there for however long you wanted to be, what would that be and where? Well, my favorite animal is the rhinoceros and there's a huge rhino sanctuary in South uh, Africa because poachers are such a uh, terrible threat to them that I'd love to just give my time to trying to help save the rhino herd of Africa. Wow. Do you do something in that vein at all now? Not right now, no. My time is so consumed with just trying yeah. to build this that I, I other than un, like tracking it and knowing what yeah. they're doing... No. So, Mike, you and I have known each other for a total of less than one hour at this point. And uh, I would never presume to step on your feet in terms of your life. But just uh, human to human, I want to extend a, 
a challenge to you and know that we're being recorded and this will be heard by listeners. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want to encourage you because sometimes all we need is an invitation or a challenge or a wake up call or whatever it is to take action on something that's important to us. So I want to challenge you that within the next three months, so you've got a good runway to do it. You will simply take one single step meaningfully closer to action that helps that cause. That could be as simple as a meaningful donation. It could be contacting an organization and asking, is there a way you can be helpful? Uh, It could be, um, you know, support a documentary that's bringing attention to that. I don't know what it is, but I want to challenge you just to do the smallest thing. You don't even have to tell anybody about it. Just you will know. Um, and everybody that you're talking to now. Well, yeah, well, I mean, we could do a follow, <laughs> we could do a follow up show, I guess. <laughs> so I just wanted to very, uh, very, very respectfully and uh, and encouragingly uh, challenge you to to just take one small step. Challenge accepted. Thank you, sir. I admire that. All right, the next the next uh, thing I want to ask you is. Uh, if if someone that's known you for 20 years who feels like they've got a pretty good handle on who you are were to learn something that you've shared with very few people, and it doesn't have to be like an embarrassing secret or something like that. It could be just some an interest that you have, let's say, that really you don't talk about, let's say, but but you're 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 okay telling about it. It's just not something usually comes up. Uh, an interest, um, um, a fact about you, uh, whatever it is, other than the rhinoceros thing, which was interesting by itself. Um, what would what would that be? What would be the uh, pull the curtain back, something you never knew about Mike before factoid? Mm. I would say probably 98% of the people that know me don't know that I write poetry. Dude, that's awesome. That's is that is that something you've done for most of your life in some way? And do you do it as a, uh, a kind of? I became a I became a writer. I don't know anyone becomes a writer. I started writing more frequently in in 2013 when I started working on a novel, and I just found that when I when I'm inspired, poetry helps to get ideas out of my head. It actually, makes me more creative with whatever the thing I'm actually trying to do is. Almost like getting getting the 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 leaves out of the gutter, cleaning the cleaning yeah. cleaning the pipes in a way, yeah. Yeah, helping uh, to visualize things because at least what the poetry I write tends to be about visual settings, whether real yeah. or imagined. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, thank you. And my final question is: What is the earliest memory that you have? It could even be back to childhood of an impact that a brand of any sort, it could be a retail store, it could be just a brand like Pepsi or whatever, you know, had some impact on you that you still remember to this day? Well, since you said Pepsi, that that triggers the... When I was three, I I have a Uh picture of me in overalls with my dad who basically taught me everything I need to know about every, you know, every machine, tool, power tool 
being able to do plumbing, electrical, all of that. And we would always have a Pepsi after we finished projects. Oh, that's nice. So that so you associate in in, in some subconscious way Pepsi with with that closeness with your father. Yeah. Well, those nice experiences, those nice memories. Yeah. And and a picture that I think my mom still has that oh. I remember very clearly. That's really nice, Mike. Thanks for sharing yeah. all those three things. I really appreciate that. It really gave me a um, <laughs> a, a, an additional transparency into the, the, the person that you are. Awesome. All right. Well, how, Mike, can people either connect with you directly or, or certainly with 3 by 3 overall uh, and, you know, for strategic partnerships or to become a client or just to learn more? Yeah, we love to talk with everyone in the industry. The the company three by three, the website's three x three dot us or three by three dot us, and I'm simply Mike at three x three dot us. Beautiful. All right, Mike Provence, uh, CEO of three by three. What a pleasure to meet you, and uh, thank you very much. He is a lover of rhinoceri. I think it's Rhinoceri, it a, uh, a poet, uh, and a man who knows his tools and enjoys a Pepsi now and then. Uh, Mike, it was such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining us. It was a really fun episode. Thanks, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode of Retail is Your Business, everybody. Uh, really enjoyed uh, your time and uh, really enjoyed you being with us all the way to the end. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then... I'm Mark Rako. Bye-bye. This has been Retail is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, audio for business.